I would like to welcome you today, Lissy, if you're coming from outside, uh, to this lecture, which is hosted by the Department of Sociology at LSE. Tonight, um, our speaker is Professor Mirsipasi, and the title of his lecture will be The Human Sciences on Trial in Iran. Um, the lecture will last for about 45 minutes, and we hope to leave a substantial amount of time, about half an hour, for uh, question and answers. Um, there will be a reception following the event. All members of the audience are very welcome to attend that. Um, to give you some information about Professor Mirsipasi, to many of you he will be known. Um, Professor Mirsipasi teaches Middle Eastern Studies and Sociology at New York University. Uh, he's the director of the Iranian Studies Initiative as well, also at NYU. He is currently a visiting professor in the Department of Sociology at LSE. Uh, among other books, um, Professor Mirsipasi is the author of Political Islam, Iran and Enlightenment, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2011. Uh, also, Democracy in Modern Iran, which was published by New York University Press in 2010. Um, Intellectual Discourses and Politics of Modernization, Negotiating Modernity in Iran, uh, which was published by Cambridge University Press in the year 2000. And he's also the editor of a number of volumes and the author of Truth and Democracy, which was published in Iran in 1999. Uh, Professor Mirsipasi's latest book is forthcoming in December 2013 uh, by Cambridge University Press. It is co-authored with Tad Ferns and is titled Islam, Democracy, and Cosmopolitanism at Home in the World. Um, before uh, Professor Mirsipasi begins his lecture, I'd like to make a few announcements. Uh, one is that, um, please, may I remind the audience to turn your phones to silent? Um, we don't want to disrupt the event. Also, if you'd like to tweet about this event, our hashtag is LSE Iran. It should be on there. LSE Iran is the hashtag. We hope that a podcast of the event will be available very soon online if every technicality goes well, which is not to be uh, trusted all the time. But this event is going to be recorded for your information. Um, before further ado, I would like to welcome Professor Mirsipasi, and thank you very much for this lecture. Thank you, Professor uh, Chubakchu, for your very um, gracious introduction. And I would like to thank you and welcome all of you for taking time and coming here this evening. Um, and I am very happy to be able to share my thoughts with you um, tonight. Okay. 
what I have decided to share with you tonight is a rather ambitious project that I hope I can accomplish in 45 minutes um, because it will touch up on several interrelated um, but very complex issues regarding um, the process of social change in Iran in the past three decades or maybe, maybe even more. The focus or the center of my talk is in the title, which refers to a series of event, events in the aftermath of the presidential elections of 2009 in Iran. I just assume that you know the details um, and don't want to go into explaining the events, but this was the second term of um, President uh, Ahmadinejad's election. The election process was going actually very slow, and the predictions even two months before the election was that this would be a non-eventful election. But then, from my perspective, partly because it was decided that the major presidential candidates would debate on national TV for the first time in the history of Iranian election uh, processes, it was decided that um, I believe four candidates would debate each other one-on-one on, one, um, on, on, on Iranian state-run national TV. And as a result of these debates and other, other issues too, but I believe to a large ex extent because um, Ahmadinejad was challenged by all other three candidates for not being truthful, for not being a thinking kind of person, and for being dishonest and unethical. I think Iranian, at the very mass level, were mobilized. And I remember one day I, I called my mom and um, he said, Ali, this is, this, the, the situation in Tehran at least looks like the days of revolution in the 78. So there was a massive social, peaceful and very, um, 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 very um, non-violent, there was no, well, very little incident. Sometimes the, um, the right-wing groups would attack um, uh, um, other candidates, but mostly a very um, peaceful a process, but very massive on scale uh, that we, uh, I don't think we ever seen in any election processes in Iran. The, the voting happened on a Friday in June, um, and immediate, but immediately after the polls were closed, um, it was announced by Interior Minister that Ahmadinejad won by landslide. 60 plus percentage, and people were shocked. And, and there were, there were uh, I would say, a spontaneous 
mass demonstrations. And again, these demonstrations were peaceful demonstrations, but they were extremely powerful because, um, because of the size of demonstrations. At some de- on some days, we had two, three millions in Tehran demonstrating, but of course, people demonstrating all over, uh, certainly in major cities. And the demands of the demonstrators were very basic and simple. The main demand was, um, where is my vote? And basically, people were furious and felt that the, it, it, this was an, a, a fraud election. And all the candidates, uh, the, major, the main candidate, former President Musavi, but also um, the, the conservative candidate, too, um, um, actively um, argued that um, the numbers don't, do not add up, and uh, point, uh, everybody pointed to many, many uh, discrepancies and problems with the votings. Um, the the post-election protest movement became a basically a social movement of 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 a mass scale, um, unprecedented presented in in, in post in, uh, after in, in post-revolution. Uh, the only um, 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 uh, mass demonstrations that I can. Um, I can um, identify it as being in the same kind of scale where some of the demonstrations uh, that led to the revolution of 78-79. The state response to to, to, to demands of people for uh, recounting the votes and irregularities in the the, uh, election was very interesting. First of all, the, the, the day after the election, um, hundreds of what the state perceived as leaders of the protest movement were arrested. Many of these people were arrested before there were demonstrations. And it was clear that there was some kind of plan to, um, to contain and control and limit the activities of certain individuals. And um, now I have to go to the next. And Ayatollah Khamenei, the, the leader of Iran, I would argue for the first time, came out and personally and in, and in a very public and visible way, um, led the, um, the, the process of um, suppressing and containing um, the protest movement. He basically, in a, on a Friday prayer um, speech, um, um, basically announced that from tomorrow, the, uh, the following Saturday, there should be no demonstrations, no one should speak of um, election fraud, and anybody who would do would commit treason, and it would be illegal, and basically invited the security forces 
under Revolutionary Guards to deal with any opposition from that day on. Um, the, the reality was that by this time, hundreds of people were already arrested. And of course, after that day, um, thousands and thousands of people were arrested, mistreated, killed, and the whole process went on for about eight months. Um, of course, after a while, the process that started as a protest against election became known as the Green Movement for those of us who supported that democratic movement and the state and uh, Ayatollah Khomeini labeled it as a fitna, which I want to come back at, at some point and, and explain what uh, he meant by fitna. So this is a little background. Um, but what was very interesting and in some respect too many puzzling was a massive mobilization of state resources and institutions immediately after the election to blame what in Iran um, is called human sciences, and here in the West we call it social sciences, to blame social scientists as individuals, social science institutions, particularly two departments at Tehran University. Um, if I can go back. So the picture you see the sort of um, the building that is the Faculty of Law and Political Science. Um, uh, members of the faculty and that institutions was, was blamed for um, for the unrest and um, and also another um, um, university institutions the um, where the sociology department is based. These two departments were blamed, and professors and students who are studying human sciences were accused of inciting revolt and unrest and, and, and committing act of treasons. But it went even further than that, and ideas of social sciences were, you know, the, the, the state media, TV and, 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 and radio, um, newspapers and magazines, Friday prayers, or every imaginable public um, space that government had, which is huge in Iran, were used and utilized to condemn, uh, maybe criticize, but to blame the ideas, institutions, and individuals who are involved in social sciences as inciting the fitna. And the Green Movement, in a sense, was identified with, um, with uh, what is wrong with what in Iran is called human sciences in Iran. So, and this is what I would like to discuss tonight with you uh, and try to, uh, try to explain from my own point of view is that why is it that in a really mainly political event, or dispute about elections, um, 
among basically several factions of the government, by the way, uh, the main oppositional candidate was a former prime minister. Musavi was former prime minister of Iran for eight years during the war, as were others, um, other candidates. Um, this was not a kind of velvet elections or revolutions in Eastern Europe of like non-communists um, challenging communists. These were all committed Muslim believers who also believed in the, in the Islamic Republic but had a difference of policies. In fact, in the debates on TV, um, um, debates were really focused mainly apart from certain ethical <laughs> and implying that Ahmadinejad may not be a stable person, which was personal, was on public policy, on, on matters of policy. So... What I want to propose, and at this point I just propose it, and then I want to come back to this, is that this has to do with the nature of truth, the state, and citizens, and the everyday life. I think to understand why in the aftermath of such a huge, massive social um, protest movements, so much of the state um, resources was mobilized to target and harass social scientists and social uh, and, uh, and you know ideas that comes from social sciences and universities and so on and so forth and continued and is continuing I would say up to uh, today has to do with the nature of Iranian state and how it is trying has been trying for the past three decades to shape its citizens according to certain notion of truth that the state thinks it projects. I come back to that, that issue, but I want to say that um, basically what I will try to explain in my presentation is a more specific um, question than stating the obvious. The title of my talk is really stating the obvious. Uh, we know that social scientists and social sciences were on trial. I will come back to this very um, uh, shortly. But the question is that why is it that social scientists are both arrested and harassed and targeted for participating, for participating in political activities which we sort of understand but also for studying the public sphere. And I think this is perhaps a little unique in the case of Iran that I would like to explain. So to go back to the original slide. Um, and again, I want to repeat that these events were so important that um, Ayatollah Khamenei, who, was the, who became the leader of Iran, in um, 1989, 1980, for 20 years, um, he always tried not to be the front man on political disputes um, and not to be very public. I think for the first time during these events, he came and he actually, his associate claims that he managed the whole um, 
process of uh, cracking down on, on the, the green movement. And he, uh, he had a very, very public presence on a daily basis. And, um, of course, the Revolutionary Guards and the, the, um, and the uh, security forces. In September of that year, 2009, he made a speech. Uh, he made many, many speeches. I, you know, for, because we don't have time, I just uh, choose um, these um, quotes. By the way, I cannot quote him because, um, in fact, after the, um, um, the, um, in the post-election time, his office basically asked all the media not to quote him at all. Uh, this is something that is still going on. Only his office would um, send reports of his, his public um, speeches, and um, the press can only code those reports and not his actual speeches. That's why I can't say what he said, because the, um, the, his office would say that our uh, beloved leader... This is what he said, and they basically summarize what he said, which is another issue. Anyhow, there are three important points that he makes in this speech. One is that that he is very concerned that there are two million Iranian youth who are majoring in human sciences or social sciences. Well, what is... Ironic about this statement is that these are mainly, or I would say exclusively, state universities. These are not Iranian students who are majoring in human sciences in London and New York. And these are professors who have gone through a very complicated process of being hired and making sure that they all believe in Islam and the ideology of the states and they, are, they behave according to very complicated rules that Iranian universities have. Right? However, it also makes a, a very empirical statement that is that for the first time, it seems, in Iran, social sciences have become popular at a very mass level. Two millions of Iranians. I will give you a, a brief um, history of the, um, the, these academic disciplines a little later, and you realize that this is pretty unique. The other two points he makes is one that human sciences are copies of Western ideas, and what they do is that um, they lead to doubts and mistrust of the principles of Islam. And his second point is that human science, which is basically, um, he is basically, again, stating the obvious that social sciences do not conform to state ideology. <laughs> Secondly, uh, his last point is that is, is a ridiculous propaganda that social sciences see um, humans as animals and basically that there is something ethically or morally wrong with social sciences. I will come back to some of this, um, this but this, it's important to, to say this. So remember that now the, the entire Islamic Republic 
states and its institutions and resources are mobilized to um, to deal with these uh, fitna um, and in that context to um, um, to show the true face of human sciences. Um, I want to talk to you only about two events that is relevant to my, my talk. One is what happened in August. Remember, the elections happened in um, June. Uh, there was mass arrests of uh, thousands of Iranians. And in August, there was what we usually, we, it's, it's known as mass show trials. Basically, um, hundreds of Iranians who were arrested were brought up, brought into a large auditorium, probably larger than this space here, and were forced. Well, they were forced to confess to confessions. So, two things very, were very important, and I would say that. You know, if someone like me, who I think I know what's going on in Iran, I was totally puzzled um, by listening to the prosecution indictments. It had very little to, do, to, to say about the crimes that these, um, these the people who were arrested made. It started with um, a discussion of certain sociologists, many of them, well, say, like Max Weber, who died in 1921, Talgot Parsons, and then some contemporaries, including Habermas and Richard Rorty, and um, so on and so on, feminism, post-structuralism, post-modernism. So it was a very surreal uh, prosecution indictment document. I think it's unique in history of humankind, probably. Uh, although I don't know, maybe during the 30s, under Stalin, there were these things too, uh, and there are similarities. Uh, sorry. The individual you see here, um, Sayyid Hajarian, is a very fascinating personality in Iran. This is a guy who was a young college student during the revolution, 78-79. He, um, he was an engineering student at Tehran University, became active in the, in the, um, in the revolution, and uh, later basically led the effort to create the information ministry, which is sort of, in the American context, it's a, um, it's a massive state uh, ministry that does what both CIA and FBI does. It's a basically the main security forces in Iran. But he became this, become this illusion, which I talk a little later about, and, um, and, and left the engineering school and, um, in fact, enrolled in the Faculty of Law and Political Science and uh, received a PhD in political science. And... He, depending on your political view, he was either credited for or blamed for the um, 
um, for coming up for a strategy that led to the reform movement and presidency of uh, Mr. Khatami in um, 1997. Uh, sort of, uh, he, uh, Hajarian was basically um, widely um, credited for engineering a, um, that election. And exactly because of that, a couple of years after Khatami became president, uh, some right-wing uh, groups targeted him, and he was assassinated. He was shot on the face, several shots on the face, and he was paralyzed. Um, I have met him several times. He is doing a little okay, or at, at the time that I was uh, meeting him, but he can't walk. Maybe he can make two, three steps, but that's all. He can probably talk for two or three minutes, but that's all. He cannot even sit. Uh, when I first time met him in his office, there, there is a bed. He can sit and talk to you for five minutes, then he has to lay down. I'm saying all this to say that certainly he wasn't on the street demonstrating. He was arrested very early on and was brought in by help. Um, and intentionally him, a person who can't hardly walk. And although the, the trials were mass trials of hundreds of people, he was particularly asked to make the forced confessions. In fact, basically, uh, the documents that, according to a state he wrote, he couldn't read, so they asked another poor, younger uh, um, prisoner to read that, was a summary of the, this is absolutely interesting because it seems, from my perspective, that the, uh, the, the, the prosecution office did this in a very rushed way. Um, basically, it's a summary of the, the indictment. All the names that were early on mentioned and blamed for the, the upheaval in Iran, those names, persons, um, with, with focus on Weber because Hajarian has written about Weber and... Um, and, um, and, and, um, and Rorty and, and Habermas and, and John Cain and others, um, he basically, um, he, he, he gave a summary of the, uh, what the, the prosecution said. At the same time, being a very smart person, I think he did two things that are very important. One is that he basically said that what is wrong with with social sciences is that um, it does not agree with the official ideology of the regime. You see this? So in a sense, this is not really a critique, or, or you can say this is both a critique but also complementing the social sciences for being, um, 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 being the dissident um, voice. Um, the poor Hajarian was later, also after the, the, the show trials, was um, also um, was forced to go on TV and make forced confessions too, as a, as a dialogue um, where he uh, repeated some of this stuff. Right? So I'm saying all these things to say that this was not an accident, this was not a sort of so-called totalitarian states blaming everyone for what is going wrong. It was systematic, it was massive, it was organized, and it continued for at least four years 
If not, well, actually, uh, even it's going on um, right now. Okay, so in fact, scholars in the West have written about the attack on human science, social sciences. Um, my colleague in the U.S., uh, Charlie Kurtzman, has written about this, and others have written, and there has been lots of discussion of this. But uh, I hope I can humbly say that. I think most of the discussion on the issue is simplistic, and I wouldn't say wrong because they tell some part of the truth, but it fits into the stereotypical discussion that we usually have of dictatorial, totalitarian states basically not tolerating dissents or freedom of speech, which certainly is part of what was going and is going on in Iran, but my argument is that there is something more powerful and meaningful and important going on in Iran. And in a sense, this is not a um, senseless dictatorial state um, going mad and just arresting people randomly and making them to confess, like, for instance, what happened in the 30s in Soviet Union. This is much more meaningful and important and specific to the case of Iran and the Islamic Republic. But now, so I want to now step back a little, um, give you some introductions to um, sort of Iranian academic intellectual history, very briefly, of course, and then come back. Is that okay? Okay. So, as I said, and I am a little simplifying the discussion because I cannot go into all these complicated issues at the same time, is that um, the two departments or the two, when, when, you know, of, of course when we say social sciences, these are all, it's not clear what social sciences are, but in Iran, the two main academic disciplines and institutions that are targeted are one political science, the other one sociology. <coughs> sociology actually historically um, um, came to Iran very late, very, very late. The first sociology course in Iran was offered in the 40s by a very prominent politician who studied in France and sort of studied sociology but also studied education, religion, so on and so forth. Uh, but a very prominent politician, somebody who under uh, Mossadegh's uh, um, um, premiership was the, um, was the uh, interior minister, a very important person, um, Sadiqi. Um, and, um, but, all, but, but, but there was no sociology as a discipline. Um, um, Dr. Sadiri was teaching in the literature department, and in fact his approach was very literary. Um, um, there is no time to discuss that. It's a very fascinating issue of how um, um, these academic disciplines on, at the local level are adopted. But um, the, the really the main sociological program in Iran was established with the help of Sadiri and another um, French-educated sociologist, Hassan Naragi, in the 60s. 
And it wasn't until 1972 that the, the faculty of social sciences was established in Iran. So sociology doesn't have a long history in Iran. And um, I know that some of you here have studied in this department, so forgive me for saying this, but uh, never enjoyed a very high status in Iranian academic life. In fact, I know, in, I went to faculty of law and, and, and political science, actually, that I come back and, and discuss, and at the time, we felt that the losers would go to sociology. And in fact, for me, it was a safety choice, right? The last, very last one was sociology, and um, when, when I took the interest exam. So I'm saying all this is to say that it's not that historically sociology has enjoyed um, either um, a huge reputation or has huge resources of popularity in Iran, never up to the um, revolution. Political science, on the other hand, um, both has a very long his history in Iran. Um, the, um, the School of Political Science, Madrasa Ulume Siyasi, was established in, in, in late 19th century, even before the School of Law. And then later, it was merged with the School of Law. Um, and still it is. It is basically Faculty of Law and Political Science. When I went there in the 70s, that was how it was. For a brief period of time, the economics was part of it, and then it separated. Um, uh, but political science until recently was really the diplomatic academy. It, when it was established, it was run by the foreign ministry. Um, and of course, prominent people like Mohammed Ali Furughi, who was a very well-known prime minister in Iran, and Ali Akbar Dehkhuda, a, a, a very, very, very well-known um, academic and cultural figures were deans of this school. So the, 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 um, uh, in the humanities and social sciences, political science always enjoyed a very high prestige in Iran, but, um, but not necessarily known for uh, being an intellectual center. Until late 60s, when Hamid Enayat, who was my mentor, and who actually, by the way, uh, studied an LSE, got a master's in political science here, but got his PhD from SOAS, um, went back and was chair of the department and um, helped, with the help of others, made political science a, um, a, a major um, um, intellectual center. And also um, many of the uh, future leaders of the Islamic movement, political Islam, whatever you want to call it, the movement that led to revolutions, came from actually this department. Many of them, including the leader of Mujahideen, uh, Rajavi, many of the leaders, uh, many in the leaderships of the Islamic Republic, and so on and so on. There is no time for me to go into this, but um, um, that. Now, one more historical um, um, issue, and then I want to get into the discussing, um, uh, going back to the earlier discussions. So up to the revolutions, basically, the intellectual environment in Iran in the 60s and 70s were dominated by two trends. I am simplifying a little 
But since I consider myself an intellectual historian of Iran and have written books about these things, I think you can sort of trust me if, um, if you know what I'm saying, that at this is, it is. At the, at these, so the, um, the main intellectual discourse in Iran uh, was, um, was organized around this notion of Vestoxification, which is a, it's a Heideggerian reading of Iranian situation and basically it's a critique of what was going on under the Pahlavis uh, of the modernization, westernization it's a critique of modernity or um, I know that some of the people who were involved would tell me this is Edward Said before there was Edward Said um, Jalal Ahmad's book Vestoxification was probably the most important political intellectual documents when I was in high school and at college. Around, and, and of course, the idea comes from Heidegger and this Heidegger, Iranian Heideggerian uh, Fardid that was popularized by the, the, the Al Ahmad whose picture is here. But the discussion, this group of people were mainly philosophers. Some of them were literary figures. Some of, many of them were scholars of Islam and religion. But there were others too. Um, but, and, and they were mainly um, in terms of, of Western figures influenced by, by two, 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 two philosophers, Heidegger and Henry Corbin, who Henry Corbin was basically French Heideggerian, so you see the connection. Um, what, was, what is interesting about this group of intellectuals uh, is that they were very hostile to sociology. I, there is no time to go into this, but um, every occasion they had a chance in their books, their speeches, and their talks, they would express their, um, their um, 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 hostility and, and, and critique of sociology, and they basically see so sociology as the manifestation of this toxification, uh, meaning um, um, really humanism and uh, politically uh, the West and liberalism and democracy and so on and so forth. Um, these groups were more elitist intellectual groups and very prominent, but there was another trend of, I would say, more popular and more and so, so more socially based um, leftist intellectuals, and these were mostly, although there are exceptions, literary figures, poets and novelists and essayists and artists, and almost. All of them were influenced by Marxism and what I call third world cosmopolitanism, um, particularly the attention to the third world literature and, um, and a struggle for justice and so on and so forth. But, um, and, and some of the main prominent literary figures of Iran were among them. And there was very little connections uh, between the two. If there, in terms of ideas, there was one that was the West toxification. Both groups sort of were very anti-Western. Now, so that's the context. When you look at the context, we see that the hostility towards social sciences actually 
comes from certain trends even before the revolution. And that, but even the groups of inter- literary intellectuals and leftist intellectuals who were not necessarily hostile to social sciences were not social scientists and didn't that much care for social sciences. Even th- that includes Marxist intellectuals. There are some exceptions, but not much. Now, a year before the controversial elections of 79, um, um, 2009, I was working in Iran and interviewing people, doing field work, on the question that relates to my talk today. And my... What I was interested in in, in, in those days was that um, what were the underlying reasons for a massive ideological change, transformation, that went on in Iran by a rather large group of Muslim activists, intellectuals, and young, basically, activists who participated in the 78-79 revolution were part of the government. They were utopian, radical leftists. And then they change, and later they form what we now call the reform movement or the, you know, they they led the democratic movement in Iran. Um, I want to just highlight five of these. I would go quickly because there are lots of things I want to say, and I don't want to not be able to do this. So these were all, these were prominent figures. Uh, Taizadeh still is in prison, uh, a very important figure. Taizadeh also got a PhD uh, from the Faculty of Law and, and Political Science. Khanaki uh, had a PhD from the Sociology Department. Uh, Reza Tehrani is the only one among them who uh, doesn't have a PhD, and Abdi also studied sociology. Um, unfortunately, I, I wish I had time to, to talk to you about uh, the, those biographies, but I don't. I just want to summarize um, what, um, they, um, what happened in my conversations with them. Um, and I want to just briefly, basically, touch on two areas that, um, that are, are, are pertinent to our, uh, today's talk. I basically asked them through a series of questions that what was in their mind during the revolutions? What ideologies, ideas, personalities um, um, influenced them um, when they were young and they were in active as radical Muslim radical revolutionaries? Um, what is interesting, is, is still I have to really talk briefly about this, is that what they told me is that, well, they were... Um, influenced by Ali Shariati, who, you know, a, a Muslim intellectual who studied in Sorbonne, very much mixed up um, certain notion of Islam that he had with Marxism, um, but also was influenced by Henry Corbin and, and Heidegger too, a sort of existentialist Marxist. Um, uh, when I say Marxism, not materialism, but didactic, the whole idea of... Um, of philosophy of history, Hegelianism, um, and, um, and, and Muslim activists, and, and the most radical one being Mujahideen. And basically, 
the, and of course the, the charismatic leadership of Khomeini. Khomeini as a leader who knows, who they trust and they can follow. And the ideology as a sort of utopian radical ideology that basically, um, if I want to simplify it, that um, can be summarized as the following. That there is a moral crisis in Iran. This is under the Shah. And the crisis is the crisis of the state. Uh, because they saw the state through Sharia and Marxism and, and many other things, that, ma- that the state as moral agent. So if, if the, the state is the moral agent, the state is either corrupt or is sources of our salvation. That's how they became revolutionaries. They became revolutionaries in a, way, in a sense that they wanted to overthrow the Shah's government, a corrupt state, and they wanted to establish Islamic State. And Islamic State for them, according to my interviews with these folks, is that is a moral agent to bring in um, um, human dignity. Um, although the way they talk about it is more utopian than that. So I asked them what happened after the revolution. So the revolution happens, these folks won the revolution. Of course, they all became um, part of the new states. But um, uh, shortly after the revolution, there was the war. Eight years war with Iraq. And so, again, I'm quickly summarizing lots of issues here. Is that what they said was that, in a sense, when they think about it now, that they feel that the war with Iraq give them the opportunity to continue their revolutionary commitment. Right? Because now, for them, the state, the moral agent, the, every, that which represented everything that they believe in, was in danger. And they were also, it's a violent exercise. It's a war. And they, they were all involved in the war. And what war offered them was a second reality. Of course, there was another reality going on in Iran, right? During the eight years of war with Iraq, the Islamic Republic was engaged in a very brutal battle, both within the states and with the forces, leftists, Marxists, and others, and, and, and minorities. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people were killed in the process, and lots of atrocities were committed. But what these intellectuals tell me is that Although at the time they were sort of aware of what was happening, but the war was the reality. And the war superimposed itself to their mind so that, one of, the, one of these folks told me that, we saw the other reality as a shadow reality. Right? It was in the background what the, the regime did, all of these things that I am putting here, of uh, the, the, the brutal way that the regime uh, dealt with the opposition, the way that the, the Montazari affairs, the, the way that they did with Ayatollah Montazari, a very respected person among them, and so on and so forth, um, they, they, they didn't pay attention to any of those things because the war was going on and everything seems justified. And they believe in the, leader, the leadership the leader, the imam, the the guide. However, 
when Ayatollah Khomeini accepted the peace deal that he had rejected and as a result hundreds of thousands of Iranians were killed and to these individuals that are interviewed it seemed that to quote them we accepted a defeat and everything at this point was questioned certainly Taj Zadeh who the poor guy who is still in, in, in prison told me that the entire aura of charismatic aura around the imam collapsed others said well we realized that perhaps our reality our reality was a shadow reality and this other reality were, were, were more real in other words maybe the state is source of lies and not a moral agent right so the moment of disillusionments the moment of change contrary to many books and scholarly works that has been written was not that their attitudes toward Islam changed or they got to know the West better or, um, um, or any of those issues was a very ex- existential experiential uh, moment in their life that, um, that moment obviously started with the war right now what is interesting is that almost all of these folks after the war, they basically stepped down from whatever government jobs they had. They all, without exception, these groups, but I know this to, to be true of larger groups, they all went to the Department of Social Sciences and studied political science, sociology, and similar fields. Two more minutes, and I probably have half an hour. Okay. Let me... Respect our very kind uh, chair. Well, I now want to just give you outline of my main theoretical argument. My theoretical, well, so I can't finish that story, but what I want to tell you is that what happened as a result of this disillusionment in the post war era was a major shift in intellectual and public discourse from this early West toxification, ontological identity basically based um, ideology to believing in ideas in the public sphere. And also talking about those ideas. By the way, when you look at the literature, it is only in the context of the reform movement these ideas of um, um, become important. And again, it's not by accident. Most of these folks and other folks went to these two departments, studied under particular professors that are blamed, and they also studied Weber and Habermas and, and some of those, John Kane and others, that the prosecution indictment mentioned. I have one more argument to make. Would you allow me? Yes, please. Good. <laughs> oh, okay. So what I want to say is that, okay, I don't, the, the only thing I want to talk is this. I want to conclude with this, that what came out of this new intellectual movement was they put it 
to me as modesty of thought. I wish I had time to discuss this. I don't have, but, but um, let me try to see, to do my best. Is that what these five individuals that I, I interviewed told me was that before they get to know social sciences and studies more systematically, and, um, and, and in, in, the, in the aftermath of the total disillusion with the leadership, they thought that there are values and ideas, and being radical and revolutionary means that you go and make and shape the reality the way you want to, or your values dictate. The studying people like Weber and Habermas and others, and for instance, some Iranians, Bashiriyeh, who was a professor uh, at the uh, Faculty of um, Law and Political Science, Huma Katuzian, who is here at Oxford, they invited him and he gave lectures. They realized that human, respect for human dignity requires a distinction between what between, as I think I say here or in the, in the previous one, is it's not to confuse, as Weber says, as a sociologist we know that, between the statement of policy and value and empirical reality, or not to confuse the statement of not, Sharia, what they believe in, and the facts. And this is, you know, I'm simplifying it and rushing it a little, but this is basically, this brings me to this slide. In another time, in the 30s and 40s, in Europe, there was very similar intellectual debates, although it wasn't just an intellectual debate, it was a massive social, political upheaval going on. It was when we were witnessing the rise of Nazism and Stalinism, and there was a huge debate among intellectuals on where to go. And all of these intellectuals were the left. Remember, the intellectuals that I interviewed are known in Iran as Islamic left. These were leftists, too. So these are people who were critical of liberalism. They never believed in objective reality or enlightened, the idea of enlightened universalism. But we see these two figures here, Michael Polanyi and Alexander Kobiyan, who, because of the biological, uh, um, 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 their, their personal experiences, but their biographies, because they were Jewish, they were Eastern European, and they were, they experienced prisons, they experienced, they had similar experience that these individuals that I interviewed had. And they were leftists, and at, at the time, even communists. They, um, <laughs> so they, 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 in the 30s and 40s, something similar to what is happening in Iran, I believe, did happen. And the end result is amazingly similar. That, for instance, here I want to just uh, focus on um, Kovier's idea of the the humbling of everyday reflections, is that both of these two, uh, Michael Polanyi as well, who is a, who's, whose uh, older brother, Karl Polanyi, is more well known 
probably among sociologists. These were the ones who said, well, totalitarian states, of course, they, were, they meant either Stalinism or, or fascism at the time, represents basically what they call the, um, the, the mother not, right? I finished. Mm-hmm. Right? And, um, but the opposite of lie is not truth. There is no total truth, right? The opposite of truth is not falsehood. The opposite of lie is believing in human dignity and believing in the, in the multi-centeredness of the truth in the public sphere. <laughs> Again, I don't have time to go into that. But, and, and I'm sure some of you know this better than I do, but when I compare what happened in the 30s and 40s, and, and, and the main piece I want to focus on is really this piece by, by Alexandre um, Corvier on um, political function of modern law. Um, by the way, we had this in, in the US in the, in the aftermath of the war, that it's massive production of laws by the state to shape the citizens as a mirror image of those laws. I think that is what the Islamic Republic is, and that is what social sciences, broadly speaking, not as a discipline or academic things, represents in Iran, and that's why the Ayatollah Khamenei feels um, threatened and concerned about it. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for this lecture. Perhaps in the Q&A session we can tease out some of the theoretical and political issues that are at stake here. If you'd like to uh, ask a question, please raise your hand and the microphone will come your way. Yes. And I urge you to pose questions uh, rather than making statements, if that's possible. Yes. Hello. I was just going to ask ask you about um, what happened actually after the Iran-Iraq war, which was that there was the um, large baby boom which took place, which left, which resulted in um, mothers being encouraged to have a lot, have a lot of children after the Iran-Iraq war to create a new generation of Iranians and then leading to a lot of them living in pov- poverty. Um, and I think that's led to quite a large sort of um, a res- resent- a resentment of the regime among the young gen- the old regime, among the young generation. Do you think that has, any, has anything to do with the sort of the shift which is taking place in Iran, especially sort of recently with the election of uh, Rouhani, who is seen as uh, moderate by Iranian standards? Okay, I'll take a few more questions, if that's all right. Yes, please. Hello, Salam Khwesin. Um So, yeah, the one I've, I firstly really loved uh, everything you said. Um, I thought that you missed a few people out like Mansur Hekmat and I wasn't too sure why Shariati's name was right next to Mujahideen when Shariati and Khomeini were on the bullet points. But my question is, do you think that um, given that you said that political function of modern lie and it takes a reflection of the state, do you think that that's basically been a long-running trend since maybe, you know, going back to the time of Reza Shah or even let's go back to the Qajars because... Uh, the things you were talking about, about forced recantations, which Abrahamian also made uh, reference to, I see that like Pahlavi Iran 
and the Islamic Republic have kind of got quite a heavy similarity with regards to um, focusing on these lies and making people believe that they're living in the state and so forth. So just your thoughts on that. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions in the house? Yes, you in the middle. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, I want to know uh, if um, I want to know your idea. Um, I think that uh, the existence of such uh, political thinkers like uh, Hajarian or the people that you mentioned, uh, it's the main reason that uh, Islamic Republic survived until survived until now, and I think it it is the main reason that. Uh, it's going to survive, I think, uh, in a long time, in the future. The fact that these people were able to go to at least somehow social science faculty and the fact that this faculty didn't, uh, uh, has, has survived after a uh, revolution, it shows that this government has capacity to accept Western uh, ideas. Any questions? Yes, you please. Okay, and after this, we should take a moment to respond and yes. I'll co- collect more questions later. I was just wondering this uh, Khomeini saying that human science is based on material, materialistic philosophy and it's animal. Was well, something to do that animals don't have a spirit, spiritual, it's not a spiritualistic, you know, like religion being spiritual. Mm-hmm. And whether he, that's what he meant by saying is animalistic. Would you like? To? Yeah, but I'm not sure if I understand the first question clearly. I was just wondering. I was just wondering whether you thought that um, the because of the baby boom, which led a lot of people into poverty, and the sort of generation which are growing up now. That's the reason why the generation growing up now is so resentful of the of the current regime, and whether that has something to do with the recent shift in Iran towards someone such as Rouhani, who is a moderate. Thank you. Well, no, I don't think so. I think my argument here is that there is a um, there has been for a long time a um, a pretty large scale organized movement for openness in Iran. And um, there, is, there are social reasons, socioeconomic reasons, cultural reasons, intellectuals involved. But uh, in the book that I published just before the Green Movement, that is the argument that I make in my book on democracy in Iran. So this is, it cannot be explained through um, fertility rates and, and generational divides. Um, so that's that. The second question. I actually do not believe that I didn't have time and probably we don't have time to go into what the the political function of um, modern law is, but um, but the two prerequisites of um, what is referred to as totalitarian states or what we now call ideological states is that one is that a massive production of lies. So this is not a state official lying, which we are all used to it, but a massive production of lie in a way that it permeates people's everyday life. I personally 
experienced that in the U.S. at the beginning of the war with Iraq, that I felt that all, everything on TV, New York Times that I read every morning, um, um, everything that the state produced, there was this sort of like reign of terror, but they were lies. There was no, I didn't feel terrorized physically, but I felt that everything has been mobilized. And in that context, I think Islamic Republic has that. And the ability to Friday prayers and to massive infrastructure of national radio and TV to produce that. And they want to produce Islamic citizens according to the mirror image of those that lie. Or the lie is really also the truth. What we are talking about is not lie, the opposite of truth, but is one dogmatic idea of, of, of truth. Pahlavi state totally lacked that. Pahlavi state was not interested in that. Pahlavi state was interested in basically controlling population, one through offering uh, development, and secondly, through police and security forces. And the, the last question. I partly agree with you. I, th- that's why I do not use the term totalitarian state for Islamic Republic. There are spaces within the system of Islamic Republic where people can voice their views. For instance, elections are taken seriously. Remember, this whole Green Movement came out of an election movement. You don't usually, in totalitarian states, you have those things. All these individuals are Muslims who also believed in the Islamic Republic and the uh, the leadership. Uh, So I feel that, yes, there is that space. But at the same time, these space also have their own dynamism. They have their own um, way of um, um, producing other kind of truth, other ideas, and in a sense that there is a sort of impasse that the Islamic Republic has to decide either to go, say, serious way, become a total police state, or has to reconcile with, with the tensions that, that, that it preoccupies them. And last question is that this issue of human sciences and, and animal things is totally propaganda. Uh, I know many of these individuals. These are as pious Muslims as Ayatollah um, uh, Khamenei. These are, it, because they study Weber doesn't mean that they are convert, they have converted to, to Protestantism or to secularism. These are not secular individuals. These are basically part of that production of massive lies. These people, I know Taizadeh, who the poor guy is still is in prison after five years. He is a devoted Muslim as any, any Muslim is. This, remember, this conflict was basically among two factions within the Islamic Republic. This was not between Weber and Talbot Parsons and Ayatollah Khamenei. Okay. A few more questions I think we can take. Um, one in the middle, then in the back, and then, yes. Hi. Uh, you know that Karl Popper is extremely popular among the reformists. Uh, is that an accident, do you think? 
Thank you. Well, two very briefly. Yeah. One, I think the, the popularity of Karl Popper is exaggerated. Um, there is no time to go into that. Secondly, I agree, uh, but for the same reason. Because um, um, Karl Popper is important in the West because he's a critique of Western European totalitarianism, right? And he's a philosopher of science. Remember, these two, both Michael Polanyi and Alexandre uh, Courier are also philosophers or historians of science. And yes, it's not by accident because he is also part of revealing the this sort of, or, 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 or making argument against this massive production of lies. So it's not by accident. Although I think his role is a little exaggerated, at least as far as I'm concerned. Okay, I'll take two questions together, in the back and then here. Did the person in the back leave? Oh, you're there. Okay. You can go first, please. Yes, in the back. Uh, what is the social science perspective in Iran regarding um, other other schools of, of, of Islam that well that, that surround them towards the east? Did you understand the question? Could you repeat that, please, a little loud? Thank you. What is uh, the Iranian social science uh, thought on? on uh, the Wahhabi movements such as the Taliban and, uh, and, and, and Pakistan, which are neighboring states that uh, they will have to deal with in the coming years. Is there a position on this? Okay. Or is it unclear? Thank you yeah, no, for repeating. Clear. Let me take another question and then you could respond. Yes. Um, yes, thank you. Um, I wanted to know, um, if possible, where history fits in, the, the study of history. Would that be included as a social science? And um, if so, or even if not, is there any state intervention in the teaching of the history, as um, the gentleman um, suggested earlier, about the, the past and the continuity of the past from the Pahlavi and Kajas and uh, mm -hmm. Safavids and, and so forth? Is there any um, sort of... Uh, official state view, and if somebody says something different, like a disruptive discourse or something, yeah. would, would, would they intervene? Okay, and the last question, I think we have only time for one more question. You haven't asked yet, have you? No, please. Uh, thank you for your presentation. I think one of the uh, most important things that we should consider is uh, in Iran, the government controls the universities. So I believe that the quality of teaching has been changed in recent years, especially in social science. And the government tries to uh, just put the, someone who are agreed with their policies as a lecturer in the university. So what do you think about the quality of teaching uh, in recent years? Thank you. That's it. Well, on Wahhabism, I didn't necessarily talk to this particular individual about Wahhabism, but I don't think they care <laughs> about Wahhabism or Taliban. It is used by all sides as, as, in, as insult, so I don't think they care for that. Um, history, I have to be a little specific here. 
The Iranian government, of course, would like to intervene in every area of academic life if they can, um, including history. But in the in the, this organized effort against certain academic discipline, um, um, I don't see any sensitivity toward history, and history has not. Nobody mentioned history or philosophy or literature. By the way, the most westernized academic disciplines in Iran are economics and management. I have actually visited these departments, and they basically, I think that in the U.S. they teach probably less western texts than they do in Iran, and nobody has raised any issues on those areas. In fact, neoliberalism is probably the dominant um, uh, uh, school of thought in, in, in economics, and I have not, never ever seen anybody within the state. I have seen some leftists criticizing them, but nobody within the state criticizing them. No, the, the really focus are these two, two, two areas. And government control. Um, I actually think this is a little more complicated. Because it is true that all these universities are, are, particularly these two departments, are controlled and run by the government. But it is not true that they can control everything. Um, um, and, and again, they have fired professors, they have um, expelled students, but every five years or so, um, we have a situation where the state feels that they have no control over, over the universities. So it's more complicated, and I think there are some spaces and universities are. On, on, the, on the last part of your question, there is no quality, really. What is ironic about this huge effort against social sciences is that social sciences in Iran is extremely weak in terms of research, in terms of curriculum, in terms of resources that these departments have. Uh, it just seems that they are a huge force only because of this attack by the states. But um, now it's extremely weak, and particularly since 2009, um, there is very little going on in terms of what we call academic research. Well, I would like to thank Professor Mesopasi for the lecture and the Q&A. We can carry on the conversation. There is a reception outside, and the audience is welcome. Everybody is welcome. So let's carry the conversation thank over. You. Thank you very much for thank coming, everybody. Thank you.